You are listening to the Vine Church Sermon Podcast. Thanks for joining us. For more information about the Vine Church, please visit our website at www.thevinemadison.org. We want to say welcome to you. My name is Zach. I'm one of the pastors here at the Vine. And uh, we're going to be looking at Psalm 138 today. Psalm 138. And so if you have a Bible, go ahead and open that, or you can uh, do a quick Google search uh, on your phone and find it that way, or you can open it up on a Bible app, or look at the screen. Um, But it's great to have uh, your own Bible and to be able to know where things are in your own Bible. We encourage you to bring that. If you don't have one, there's some in the back on the tables back here, and you can keep one if you don't have one. And my wife, Kim, is going to read Psalm 138 for us this morning. So Psalm 138. I give you thanks, O Lord, with my whole heart. Before the gods, I sing your praise. I bow down toward your holy temple and give thanks to your name for your steadfast love and your faithfulness. For you have exalted above all things your name and your word. On the day I called and you answered me, my strength of soul you increased. All the kings of the earth shall give you thanks, O Lord, for they have heard the words of your mouth. And they shall sing of the ways of the Lord, for great is the glory of the Lord. For though the Lord is high, he regards the lowly, but the haughty he knows from afar. Though I walk in the midst of trouble, you preserve my life. You stretch out your hand against the wrath of my enemies, and your right hand delivers me. The Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. Your steadfast love, O Lord, endures forever. Do not forsake the work of your hands. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. Praise be to God. Well, we are in a series on the Psalms, Summer in the Psalms. And so we're looking at a different psalm uh, every week this summer until we get to our Madison Multiply preaching series in August. And so today was Psalm 138. And right out of the gate, we have this picture of confidence. Okay, in verse 1, we have this picture of confidence. You know, for, for those who operate at the highest levels of any, any occupation, any sports endeavor, business, music, education, politics, research, oftentimes you'll notice that those who are the best of the best, the one-tenth of one percent, top of the food chain, Sometimes those kind of people can kind of toe the line very nimbly between arrogance and confidence, right? And it's a really fine line. And you you can understand how that would be. Like if you're going to be the lead violin soloist with a 70-piece orchestra and this thing has to be memorized and it's pages and pages of music and you stand up in front of 2,000 people at the orchestra hall with 70, you know, piece orchestra right behind you, and you're playing that violin suite, you better have some confidence, right? And you can see how if you don't have, like, that person might, you know, struggle with confidence arrogance, right? I, you know, I, I know a lot of nurses, I know a lot of doctors, uh, just through history here at the Vine and UW, and oftentimes surgeons get a bad rap because they can, they are known as being very arrogant, and, um, you know, no offense to any surgeons in the room, but even my surgeon friends would say, yeah, that's true a lot of times. 
But here's the deal. Like, if you're a brain surgeon and, and you're going to slice open my dome and start fishing around in there, like, I'm okay with you walking that line between confidence and arrogance. You better be real confident, right? Like, that's a good, that's a good thing. I want, I want that. Maybe not as their pastor, but as their patient, you know. I want that walking that line between confidence and arrogance, right? Now, that can be hard at times. And, and we know biblically that confidence is much better than arrogance because the Bible says God opposes the proud. But the question, if you're confident, is why are you confident? Like, we want to reject arrogance. But if you're confident, why are you confident? In what are you confident? And the psalmist gives us a great picture of that this morning. His confidence is not found in his own abilities, but in God's abilities. It's a sure, solid confidence in God. Look at verse 1 with me. I give thanks to you, O Lord, with my whole heart. Another way to say that would be with my whole being. With everything I am, I give thanks. And in the second line, he expands on that. He illustrates that. He says, before the gods, I sing your praise. Now, in ancient Israelite culture, and you just, all you got to do is read the Old Testament, there's false gods everywhere that God's people are constantly tempted to worship, right? But the psalmist says, I'm not going to worship them. I'm not going to engage in false idolatry. What's his posture? What, what, what is his posture here? clearly one of confidence. Imagine the language in verse 1. I, I give thanks to you, O Lord, with my whole heart. Before the gods, I sing your praise. So it's like he's painting this picture of standing in front of the false gods that are arrayed in front of him. And he's looking beyond them. He's looking up to Yahweh that we just sang about. And he's singing praise to Yahweh, the God who made heaven and earth. It's like, he's like, I'm going to sing to you, God, in front of these false gods. See that? That's some confidence, right? That's some confidence. In our day and age, we're not confronted with the same false gods. We still have them, of course. We don't have Baal. We don't have the, the other forms of, of false gods. We don't have golden calves like they had. We've got materialism. We've got politicians. We've got money. The human heart has not changed in a few thousand years that much. And so I don't think we need to spiritualize this verse. I think we could actually do the exact same thing and take this verse very literally. What do I mean? Like, we're watching something online and commercials pop up, and the commercials 
do a really good job trying to convince us, hey, you need A, B, and C to be happy. Jesus talks about the deceitfulness of wealth. That's coming at us all day long in a culture of consumerism. It's a false god. We, we are tempted to bow down and put our trust and our hope in things that we can purchase, that we can feel, as opposed to the living God of the universe who made heaven and earth. So, like, you see that commercial, and maybe you don't bust out in song, but maybe in your heart, when you see that commercial, you can, you can just sing to yourself, my, my, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness, Meaning, I'm not going to hope in stuff, I'm going to hope in Jesus. But I'm actually going to have that song come to mind. Or maybe you're by yourself in the car, and you see the billboard, and it calls out to you, worship stuff, worship materialism, worship sex, worship power, whatever. And you're going to sing to yourself, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Like, actually do that, like the psalmist does here. I'm, I'm, I'm presented with the false gods. I'm going to say, nope. In, in, in their presence, I'm going to sing to the true God. We look the false gods in the eye and we sing praise to our God because we know that he is true and he is right and he never, never fails. So we sing. Let's keep reading in verse 2. So we sing, but we also, we bow. There's, there's worship language here, right? Verse 2, I bow down toward your holy temple and give thanks to your name for your steadfast love and your faithfulness. For, or because, you have exalted above all things your name and your word. Let's, let's, let's track with the flow of thought here, okay? Posture of worship, the first half, giving thanks, singing, bowing down, right? And then he gives, in the second half of verse 2, he gives a reason why. Why, why, why would we do that? And, and here's the question I want us to consider in verse 2. Look at where he says, For you have exalted above all things your name and your word. Think about that. God exalts above all things, what? His name and his word. Why would that stir the psalmist to worship? Look at what, I mean, that's the flow of thought, right? Look at it. I bow down toward your holy temple and give thanks to, to your name for your steadfast love and faithfulness for... I'm going to worship because for you've exalted above all things your name and your word. I think sometimes we would expect this verse, the second half of verse 2, to read, you have exalted above all things me and your love for me. It's all about your love for us as your people as the highest of all pursuits. And certainly without question, God loves us. Without question. The Bible is clear. Romans 5.8. God demonstrates, he's put it on display in history, 2,000 years ago in the Middle East, 
fact of history, God demonstrates his love for us in this, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So don't question that for a second. God loves you. And verse 2 is plain. Look at it. I give thanks to you for your name, for your steadfast love and your faithfulness. But does that mean that we are the exact bullseye, the center of God's affections? That's not what the psalm says, is it? It says that the highest thing in the universe, that which is uttermost in God's affections, that which he values to the highest degree, is not us, but what? Himself. His name. In in the psalmist, when he talks about his name, that just means God's character, his person, who he is. He exalted himself and his word, what what he speaks, his revelation. God's passion for his own glory is what he cherishes most in the universe. And hear this, this is not for our harm or depreciation, it's for our absolute good. It's loving for God to speak this way. Like, think about it like this. You wouldn't want to worship a God that is himself an idolater. Meaning, what is most valuable in the universe? What does God call us to worship? He doesn't call us to worship ourselves. He calls us to worship him, right? You with me? Because God knows that he's the greatest. He's so loving to orient us towards him and not towards false gods. Does that make sense? It's loving, it's it's most loving to say, for him to say to us, focus on me, focus on me, worship me, orbit around me, cling to me. Why is that loving? Why is that loving? Because he's the greatest. He doesn't want to give us anything less than the greatest. God is the greatest person or thing in all the universe, and he knows it. And it's not arrogance for God. It's simply him telling the truth. So hear this now. God is the one person in all the universe. God is the one person in all the universe for whom Commanding praise of others is loving. You and I can't do that, right? That's the height of arrogance. That's the height of idolatry. That's the height of sin. But for God, it's for our own blessing. Does that make sense? This is a big deal. We have access to that which is the greatest good in the universe. God himself, he knows it. He says it, and he gives himself to us. Him commanding praise is for your joy. You weren't created to be the center of attention. He was. So when he talks this way, that's for our good. That's for our good. That's the reason to sing and bow and give thanks. Let's keep reading. Verse 3. On the day I called, you answered me. My strength of soul, you Increased. So, 
Verse 2, we could call the God-centeredness of God. God is, is centered on his own greatness, and out of that flows his love for us to give us what is greatest in the universe, namely himself. But that doesn't make him aloof. See that in verse 3? He's not aloof, is he? He's not disinterested, but rather what? Verse 3 says he hears us. He hears us. Why? Because if God is so great and he is loving, then he would want to answer us so that we can have, again, what's the most great in the universe, namely a relationship with him. So, this first third of the psalm, we see it's very personal. Look, look at the first third. We see lots of I language. I give thanks. I bow down. Right? On the day I called. So it's, it's very, very personal in nature. And now the second third, it's going to go worldwide. Okay, let's take a look. Look at verse 4. All the kings of the earth... We're going global now. All the kings of the earth, the whole earth, shall give you thanks, O Lord, for they have heard the words of your mouth, and they shall sing of the ways of the Lord, for great is the glory of the Lord. So what's the psalmist doing here? It's kind of like this. You know how sometimes there's things that happen in the world that are global in nature? You know, sometimes, you know, I've got the privilege to travel around different parts of the world, different continents in my last 10 years. And you'll talk to people or you'll look at the, the newspaper maybe at a newsstand or maybe you have the opportunity to, to watch TV and see some news coverage and in, in places where I go, like Morocco or France or, or Ecuador, um, the news coverage is very different than what we have, right? And the issues are very different, and the things they focus on are very different. But sometimes there's things that happen that are so huge in nature that it doesn't matter where you're living unless it's maybe somewhere like super, super, super isolated like North Korea it's going to be on the headlines. It's going to be on the front page. It's like JFK getting assassinated. It's like the two towers getting bombed. It's like uh, World War II is over. It's like the Berlin Wall comes down. These are the, these are the kind of stories, that, the magnitude of which cannot be contained. It, it goes worldwide. News like that is too big to be contained by geographic boundary lines. And it's the same here in the Psalms. That's what he's saying. The psalmist knows that the greatness of our God can't just be for him alone, like verse 1, 2, and 3. Not just me and Jesus, but it's, it's going to be global in nature one day. It one day will be universally acknowledged. That's why he says, verse 4, all the kings of the earth. One day... The good news of what God has done in history will be known every square inch of the globe. The most powerful and influential 
will know that God is God and they are not. Verse 4. And think about this and be encouraged this morning. The promise of this psalm has already started to happen. It's already happening. Where this was written? Middle East, a few millennia ago. As far as the psalmist knew, this news about God and what he's doing in history to call a people to himself for his glory, to be a light to the world, hadn't really happened as much yet. He probably had no conception of, of course, we know this for a fact, of the United States of America. But, but yet, here we sit. Here we sit. The long ways from ancient Israel. This is already happening. It's already begun. It's been happening since he wrote this. Right? Be encouraged. God's plan is moving forward into the world. It, this verse is, com- is, is coming true. Let me, let me give you an example. I just read this this morning. In Iran, one of the last Muslim theocracies in the world today, about 20 years ago, the number of Christian converts from a Muslim background, again, two decades ago, in the whole nation of Iran, was they, people estimate maybe 5,000 to 10,000 people. 20 years later, people estimate there's anywhere between 800,000 and a million Christians in Iran. It's the fastest growing evangelical movement in the world. And, and that's verse 4, and they have heard the words of your mouth. It's coming true in our world today. People are hearing the words of his mouth and responding. The spiritually dead are being raised to life. Christianity's always been radiating out. It's never, after post-Jesus, post-nation of Israel, it's global in nature. And that's why we focus on neighbors and nations here at the Vine. Let's go across the street, across the ocean. It's global. But to be known by this God, there's a conditional statement here. If you want to be known by this God, if you want to participate in his plan in a way for your blessing and not for your judgment, there's a condition. And every citizen under heaven has to meet this condition in verse 6. Let's look at verse 6. For though the Lord is high, he regards the lowly. But the haughty he knows from afar. For the Lord is high, he regards the lowly, but the haughty he knows from afar. What does it mean to to know someone from afar? I think our most recent pandemic history has really taught us what this means. It means separation, right? We've experienced that in recent days. Like sad stories of people being separated because of the pandemic. Some of our good friends, Stephen Sandy Yongren, who, um, who most recently handed over 
the leadership of our ministry property in, uh, it's not ours, but, you know, what we partner with in Ecuador, ministry called Compassion Connection. Steve and Sandy used to um, be in charge down there, and they've handed that off to Justin and Laurel like we learned last week. Good friends of my wife and I, and early on, she had COVID pretty bad, you know, had like a fever for three weeks. And they couldn't be together. They were separated. And they had to, like, talk between a window pane. You know what I mean? It was just really horrible. I mean, can you imagine if that was how your marriage was for a long period of time? Knowing each other from afar. You can't have close contact. I mean, for so many other citizens in our world today. What, what a painful experience to be separated like that. Grandparents never able to see their grandkids for two years. You can never have relationships as they're intended by that kind of distance, right? God didn't create us for that kind of distance. God created us to be together. But God is saying the same thing here. Like, you can't have fulfilling relationships, really, two-dimensional Zoom relationships. That's not fulfilling. That's not fulfilling. That's an emergency kind of thing. But God is saying the same thing here. You can't have a fulfilling relationship with him at a distance. But it's not a literal disease that keeps us separated, but it's the disease of pride. See that? Verse 6. For the Lord knows the high, for the Lord, sorry, for though the Lord is, high, Lord is high, he regards the lowly, but the haughty, distance, afar. That's not a picture of a fulfilling relationship with our God. No humility, no intimacy. And in the Bible, there's this repeated and distinct divide between two groups of people. It's not rich, poor. It's not educated, uneducated. It's not urban, rural. It's not old, young. It's, not, it's got nothing to do with skin color. In the Bible, over and over again, you'll see the divide is between the proud, the proud and the humble. And in verse 6, the way they describe it, it's the same, same, same idea, but it's the haughty and the lowly. The proud or the humble. God opposes the proud, First Peter, but gives grace to the humble. So in the Christian worldview, how does verse 6 manifest itself so that God doesn't stay afar, but he, but he, but he regards the lowly, right? So it starts with just simply this, admitting your Lowliness, admitting you need a savior, admitting your neediness. Like, I can't save myself. I need someone outside of me to put me right with the God of the universe. I can't clean myself up enough. The disease, you can't clean up a disease, right? 
not an issue of washing. It's like I need spiritual chemotherapy. And I can't do that. I'm not qualified. I don't have those credentials. But Jesus does. He's the great physician. Right? And the good news of Christianity is that God has provided always, from cover to cover, you admit your need, God provides. You embrace lowliness, God will come to you and he will eventually lift you up. And in Jesus, in the gospel, God says, I will take your neediness. I will take it upon myself. I will provide for you. Like you can't handle it. It's too heavy. But I can carry it. Just give it to me. Trust me with it. Come to me and live. Forsake self, self-actualization. That's why Jesus came. It's the cross. It's the empty tomb. And some of you here in this room need to realize this for the very first time. Like trying to, 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 to stay on that treadmill of good deeds, trying to earn your, your favor. Like, I'm, I'm a pretty good person. I'm a pretty good person. I'll just keep working it out on the treadmill of good deeds. And I know, that, you know, I'm not as bad as the guy down the street. I'm not, I'm not perfect, but, you know. That's, that's exhausting, and you never arrive. It's a treadmill. You never arrive. And God says in the gospel, you can get off the treadmill. You're exhausted. You can't do it. Trust me. I ran the race, and I completed it. I finished it, and I get the, I get the, the first place trophy, and I'm just going to give it to you as a gift when you come and say, I can't do it. I need to just receive. I can't earn it. I just need to receive That's the gospel. And for others who know this, if you know this gospel, you just continually roll out of bed in the morning, feet hit the floor, and admit, God, today again, I know I'm needy. Would you fill me up? I confess my sin to you. I may pray the Lord's prayer. Forgive those who trespass against me as you forgive me. And I walk in that forgiveness, and I receive the power of the Holy Spirit that helps me remember who I am in Christ and gives me the power to keep going. So, verses 1 through 3, the psalmist calls us to join him in reveling in the God-centeredness of God, his love for us that flows from that. Very personal. The middle section, global, right? The God-centeredness of God cannot be contained. And now we go back to personal as we close with verse 7 and 8. Let's look at verse 7 and 8. Though I walk in the midst of trouble, you preserve my life. You stretch out your hand against the wrath of my enemies. and Your right hand delivers me. The Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. He says it again, steadfast love. Your steadfast love, O Lord, endures forever. Do not forsake the work of your hands. So the psalmist ends where he started. Look at where he says, the Lord will, verse 8, the Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. The Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. Some of you here this, this morning, 
feel like you're floundering. Feel like you're treading water, wondering if God has a purpose for me that he will fulfill. Hear God's word this morning. For those that come to him, embrace their lowliness, embrace their neediness, come to him in humility, he will fulfill his purpose for you. He will. God will fulfill his purpose for you. Why would I have the audacity to say that? Because God's word says it. Your steadfast love, O Lord, endures forever. See the connection? Verse 8, the Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. Why, Why would you say that, psalmist? Well, it's because you love me. Your steadfast love, O Lord, endures forever. God has a fiercely loyal love for those who come to him in lowliness. The proud from afar. If you're willing to humble yourself and come to him, admitting your need for forgiveness of your sins, man, that's good news right there, right? That's good news. The Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. Nothing can touch that. Nothing can touch you. You're secure, right? God has a hold of you with a a fatherly grip. And no one can force him to let you go. That's good news. The Lord will fulfill his purpose for you because his love for you is fiercely loyal. So to those that feel floundering this morning, receive that. Embrace that. Believe that. So what have we seen this morning? Let's summarize. Look at Psalm 138 with me. In the beginning, we've seen that God is the greatest person in the universe. We confidently worship him in the face of false gods. And this is for our absolute good and our joy. And we've seen that the greatness of our God cannot be contained. It will be known in all the earth, neighbors and nations. And you can know this morning that God's purposes for you will be fulfilled in joy and true life for those who humble themselves before him. Those who humble themselves before the cross where he paid for our sin, he paid for your your sins, your disrespect, your lack of love for him and for others. God says, "I, I will take that. I will take that. Just admit it. And my resurrection will be the assurance that it's all true. And in light of that, you can believe this psalm and rejoice in what it says because of the cross and the empty tomb. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you this morning for your word. You exalted above all things your name and your word. Father, I pray that we would join you in that. I pray, Lord, that this psalm would come alive for us, that those here that are listening today would
embrace maybe just one part that needs to be applied to their life, that you would apply that to their lives right now by the power of your spirit. Would you do that? Father, I pray that we would be willing to humble ourselves so that we can know the joy of fellowship with you and not the alienation of of self-centeredness. God, would you do that among us this morning? God, we praise you for being the God of heaven and earth, for being our creator and our savior. We thank you for the facts of history that are radiating out in our world day by day by day. And may it continue in Jesus' name. Amen.